now on Netflix. Inspired by the unbelievable true story of a fake hitman comes the new movie, Hitman, from Academy Award nominee Richard Linklater. At 96% certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, critics are calling Hitman a smart, sexy crime thriller with surprises at every turn. Starring Glenn Powell and Adria Arjona, Hitman. Now playing on Netflix and in select theaters. Rated R. According to best-selling author Patrick Snow, bestseller is a manipulated term. If you want to be a best-selling author, take out a $100,000 loan and buy 15,000 copies of your own book. At one point, students graduating from college who were entering into the literary world, the title best-selling author next to their newest novel was a high honor. But now, thanks to major player Amazon, it doesn't take too much to earn that title especially with Amazon launching their own best-selling charts. We know many authors out there that we know make the charts with each novel they release. James Patterson, Janet Ivanovich, Mary Higgins Clark, Stephen King, Nicholas Sparks, and Anne Perry. Some of these write strictly with one genre. Some will work titles under different genres. Few of them divulge into pen names. Pen names allow them to cross over into these other genres and see whether or not their story is worthy of a best-selling list without the attachment of their name. They have worked hard to build up. What many don't know is that many of them create pen names long before ending up on that list. Many do so to protect their lives, their families, One in particular changed her name to separate herself from a grisly murder that she committed when she was just 15 years old. She and her best friend were inseparable in the early 1950s and at the time feared from their parents that their two teenage daughters were more than friends. When in reality, they were two girls who bonded over their love for writing stories, their love for living in a fantasy world, and together they could write from two different perspectives, create a story that is far better than one mind would create on its own. They would role-play their ideas, create believable dialogue, and while doing so, they became best friends, even sisters in their own minds. Juliet moved with her parents thanks to her father's role at the university, and due to the fact that warmer weather would help their daughter Juliet and her diagnosis. What they never expected was for their daughter to be left behind some time for her role in the murder of her best friend's mother. 
Tonight, we hop on a plane and travel to New Zealand, where the young Anne Perry lived with her parents as the warmer weather let her heal from her diagnosis. And there, she made the best friend, Pauline Parker, and together, they became inseparable. That is, until Anne's parents divorced and she was going to move away and leave Pauline behind. Neither wanted that to happen, so together... They decided to remove the only person who could put their foot down and never allow Pauline to go. Honora Reaper, Pauline's mother. Welcome to the True Crime Librarian Goes International. I'm your librarian and host, Ashley, and tonight I introduce you to a case that is a no-brainer for me to cover. When a best-selling author has a past that includes none other than murder... Here I am. So our first stop leads us to Christchurch, South Island, New Zealand, where in 1954, a murder trial rocked the island. Two teenage girls, one from a fluent family new to the island and the other from the complete opposite, and their victim was none other than the native's mother. And she had to die because Juliet Holm, or Anne Perry, was forced to move due to her parents' divorce and her father leaving the university. Both had aspirations of becoming authors, but only one would leave the iron bars behind to find a new life with a new name and top the charts not only in the UK, but in the United States and across the globe. Warning, this episode contains adult language. Listener's discretion is advised. Good freaking evening, my true crime nerds. I have missed you guys so incredibly much since taking a break for this summer. If you missed, there was a meet and greet hosted by a library in Pennsylvania through Zoom, and I got to see new faces that I've only known through correspondence, through social media, and the podcast, and the familiar face of my beautifully sweet sister-in-law. I so enjoyed being able to do that far more than I imagine, and I'm hoping that I can host one on my own in the coming months. So be on the lookout for information on that, either on Facebook or Instagram. I do realize I have a dedicated following list on Twitter, and I do not mean to ghost you guys, but let's face it, I'm not the best person to be super active on social media. I do post about upcoming shows and more, but truly, if you want to get the low-down nitty-gritty, find me on Facebook and Instagram. 
As many of you have probably noticed, I've shifted the show over to Tuesday nights at 5 p.m. This takes some of that pressure off on Mondays where I'm scrambling around making things stay on time. From now, I plan for the YouTube to drop on Wednesdays like before, but it could be adjusted. We will play it by ear for now. The show has grown over the break, and I want to welcome all these new true crime nerds tuning in tonight. Some of you binged the show all summer long to get caught up, and a few went back and re-listened to some of their favorite episodes. I just want to remind you to share your love for TTCL with those in your social media world. Spread the love around, and let's welcome many more to our humble true crime group. I will admit that the international season is not set in stone, and it, except for one other case besides this one. So if there is one in your neck of the woods that you think others would enjoy, hit me up on social media or send me an email over uh, at librarian.com. There's a spot where you can email me your suggestions and I can see all of that. From the website, you can also shop merch, you can support the show. Um, and, or you can just drop an email about anything that you want. Don't forget to follow the show in the podcast on your app. Hit the follow, hit the like, whatever it is that that app asks you to do. Don't forget to drop some reviews. This helps the word get out about TTCL to other people and brings in new listeners. And you wouldn't believe how much it truly does help out. I'm not one that's going to decipher algorithms and play them to my advantage, nor am I the type to post clickbait just to up my traffic numbers or cut content because it doesn't follow the very long-winded guidelines of YouTube in order to make every episode worthy of advertisers. The only way to force their hand is to interact. So subscribe, share, comment, continue to listen to The Librarian right here on TTCL. I know that was like a lot of housekeeping all at once, and I tried to get through it as fast as I could, but let me shut up and get to what you all came here for, the true crime. All right, let me introduce you to the Hume family, and Dr. Henry Rainsford Hume was born August 9th, 1908. He had a knack for academics. His brain wired was wired better than a computer. He would win scholarship as a young child to Manchester Grammar. During the school years, it's a prestigious school that would only further garden his knack for education and his desire for learning, thus making him an excellent candidate for university following school years. Dr. Hume, who would go on to work under Werner Heisenberg, and for those of you that were are Breaking Bad fans, you will know that name. This is the very same guy that Walter White named his alter ego in the show. Heisenberg had just won the Nobel Prize for his work in physics for the discovery at the root of quantum theory, and Dr. Hume was offered an opportunity to work under him to further his own knowledge. Dr. Hume would earn his PhD in 1932. Five short years later, he met and married Hilda Marion Reveille. Hilda Marin Reveille was three years junior to Henry. She was born January 30th, 1912, and those who knew Hilda described her as coolly, elegant, beautiful, outspoken, theatrical in temperament, and sexually outgoing. 
a complete opposite of her brilliant husband. What either saw in one another is beyond most. For as far as anyone knew, Hilda had zero university training, so they really didn't have a whole lot in common. In 1937, Henry and Hilda married. The life of being the wife of a brilliant man must have held some promises for her. So naturally, family came next. But Hilda was not cut from the cloth that included mothering. There are people out there who, you know, that's their life's goal. They're made to do it. You can tell by the endless patience that they have and things like that. You can see they were made to be a mom. Then there are other ones that you're, you see and you're like, yeah, you were not made to be a mom. It happens. It, there's nothing wrong with it. But Hilda was that type of person. So on October 28, 1938, when she and Henry welcomed their daughter, daughter Juliet Marion Hume, she wasn't boastful about the delivery. Juliet had both of her parents to thank for her personality. She was smart like her father. She was headstrong like her mother. She was not a baby who was fussed over, who was spoiled. She was a baby that didn't force her parents to mold to her. She molded to them. And this is something I got into a conversation over not too long ago. Most new parents who've never had any children and they welcome their first child into the world, they mold their life to shape the routine of their baby because trying to mold a baby into your routine damn near impossible good luck with that um i wish you all the best but for hilda she was hell-bent on forcing her newborn baby to form to her schedule to her likes to her life she wasn't, you're not going to fuss over her. You're not going to make a big deal. Don't act like, you know, when I say don't fuss over her, I mean, you walk into a room and you see a baby and most of us are like, oh my God, a baby. And we want to go see and say hi. And no, not in her home. You were not allowed to do that. You came to see her. You need to give her the attention. You didn't come to see her baby. Um, so it doesn't surprise me that in latter years, Juliet turns into this person that she had because her personality was very similar to her mother's. She's superior and the world revolves around me. That's who Hilda was. Before Juliet turned one, Hitler had already invaded enough countries and consumed enough territories that the rest of the world was watching in fear and not sure of what was to come next. On September 3rd, 1939, just before her first birthday, war was declared. And Greenwich, where she was born, saw bombings, destructions, invasion, loss. It was terrifying for everyone, but I can't even imagine what it was like for those who were becoming new parents. Raising a child in a war, in a world that was at war with one man and his greed and his monstrous beliefs. By the time Juliet turned two, she suffered from what is known as bomb shock. And this is something a lot of children during that time suffered from. And this is caused from children who are being raised up in a community or in an area where cities, villages, neighborhoods are being destroyed due to the amount of bombing that is going on. 
And when I say bombing, it's not like one, one week and one, a couple weeks later. These are continuous daily, sometimes multiple times a day. So these poor children lived in fear. You don't know. All you know is that is a terrifying sound and people are screaming and people are crying and things aren't right. They pick up on the tension. They may not understand why it's going on, but they do understand it. So they would end up with bomb shock and then they would regress almost in their um, sleep habits. They would wake up with blood curdling screams. They would wake up in fear. They had nightmares. They were constantly worried about that sound happening to them. Didn't know what it really was, but it was enough to cause fear. So the once girl who was forced to conform to her parents' lifestyle was now creating a demanding environment for her because she needed attention. She needed comforting. These things were terrifying. And so it wasn't something that Hilda particularly cared for. There was a time on a cold winter night when Hilda was pregnant with their second child that she and Juliet had to rush to the bomb shelter. When Hilda, and I mean, this is her own storytelling, whether we can believe it 100% to be true, I don't know. Um, I'm going to say we're going to take it with a grain of salt here, okay? Because Hilda was known to exaggerate a little bit when it came to her storytelling. But according to her, they were on their way to the bomb shelter. And if something was going on during the night where it was bomb after bomb after bomb, Hilda would get to the shelter and she would leave Juliet under some brush or under a bush, uh, tucked away. And when they would have a break in the bombings, when it was silent for just a few minutes, then Hilda would call Juliet to the shelter and they would all go in. On this particular night, Hilda couldn't do that. According to her, she becomes stuck in the entranceway of the bomb shelter. And it was in the middle of winter up in Greenwich. And so that left poor young, young Juliet out in the weather and frigid temperatures for a long time. She ended up being diagnosed with pneumonia. Now, there are reports that she had contracted tuberculosis as well. I'm not really for sure because I've only seen it in one spot and then I have multiple other spots that don't say. So, I'm going to say that Juliet had probably directly resulted from, you know, this getting stuck out in the winter. She ended up with some lung issues. And the doctor's recommendation for curing whatever it was that happened that night was she needed to go and live in a warmer climate. When they did x-rays, she had shadowing in both lungs. Now, in today's medicine, that could be either pneumonia, active pneumonia, or it could be signs of TB. Either way, she was sent to go to live with a nurse in Barbados, and they were to stay there until the war was over. Hilda, Henry, and their son would stay back in Greenwich. 
due to the amount of separation that she endured from her parents at a young age, Juliet morphed into this very difficult child, often retreating to her very own imaginary world where parents don't do that. You know, there's this perfect utopian that you live in and that doesn't happen to you. You're not mistreated. You're not forgotten. You're not sent away. You know, you're not a burden. You're everything is rose colored glasses kind of thing. That's who Juliet became. And when you tried to shift her focus from anything other than that, she became very difficult to handle. She she threw tantrums. She wouldn't listen. Your typical, you know, mid-tween, early teen child, but she was going through it at, at a much earlier age. On May 30th of 1947, Dr. Hume responded to an advertisement that was sent out to the United Kingdom, Australia, New Zealand, Canada, and South Africa. And it read, quote, applications are invited are invited for the position of full-time rector. Salary was 2000 per annum. Canterbury College and Christchurch was one of six colleges providing higher education in the area. Even more appealing is that Christchurch was one of New Zealand's most English colonies. This position of full-time rector would include not only the academic head of the college, but you would become a sitting member uh, on the council. You become a chair on a professorial board and you would collaborate in the work of the university as a member of what they called the Senate. Dr. Henry Hume was more than qualified academically and quickly became a strong candidate for the position in Christchurch in New Zealand. Frankly, the university was surprised that a man of his caliber was interested in the position, but with the failing health of his wife, she, Hilda, started to show signs of being ill. Um, I am deducing from the, the way the story is told that um, it was more of seasonal depression. So, but either way, anyways. Henry could see that his wife was not thriving. And if his wife isn't thriving, then there's a chance his son wouldn't thrive. Then he also has a daughter who doesn't live with him in the same damn country. She lives with some non-family member in a warmer climate. And moving to New Zealand would be the opportunity to put them back together as a family. So it was a no-brainer decision. Come January 30th of 1948, the New Zealand Department of Labor Employment requested to grant priority passage for Dr. Hume and his wife and two children. This was required during this time, even though we saw the end of the war. Moving between countries was still something that it wasn't, I don't want to say it was impossible to do. But you had to have special, you know, privileges to go from one country to another. You needed, you know, you weren't going to move there and, and start your crap there if you came from a spot where you started crap. You know what I mean? If you're not a good neighborly person, we're not going to let you in. So travel had to happen under 
priority and, and passage rights and things like that. So when New Zealand Department of Labor and Employment requested the grant for passage, it included Dr. Hume, his wife, his son, and his daughter, Juliet. She was just shy of her 10th birthday, and she still had not lived with her family when she made the move to New Zealand. According to Hilda, Juliet went to New Zealand around February or April of 1948. The rest of them would not arrive for some time following their daughter, and it seemed like neither Henry or Hilda were too concerned about reconnecting with her. Now, let me introduce you to Pauline Parker and her family. Her father, Herbert Detelve Reaper, was born October 22nd, 1894, and he lived a life a lot less entertaining than that of Dr. Henry Hulme. Let me go ahead and throw this out there. For those of you that have made it this far, we all know I don't uh, pronounce things correctly, and I'm not going to, you know, just miraculously start doing so now. So as I know that you would like to correct my grammar, um, I'm going to ask that you refrain from doing so. This is, um, this is something you run into when you leave your country of origin. You have a hard time pronouncing some of the words and names in cities and things like that of an unfamiliar area. So while many of you, I know many of you are just eagerly waiting to correct me, I ask that you refrain from it because I'm not going to pronounce it right and I'm giving you the warning now. Anyways, back to this. According to Bert, who Herbert went by Bert, he married a woman named Louisa, a woman years older than himself. He didn't admit to any of this until after Nora's death or or Honora's death, and he felt the need to explain why he and Nora were never formally married. And according to Bert, he married Louisa. Things changed after they exchanged vows and you know, things do change. When you say I do, once you're in the confides of a marriage, things do become different. Um, I don't want to say that that's a bad thing. For a lot of people, it's a really good thing. Um, a lot of people actually look forward to that. Um, but for Louisa, it kind of went the opposite direction. She became verbally abusive and not long after the verbal abuse began, she started to become physically abusive towards Bert. There came a time that he began to fear her outburst. Um, he had woke up one morning to, you know, a lovely wake-up call. She was strapping a leather strap around his neck and pulling as tight as she could. You know, your typical wake-up call. Uh... And he decided, you know, I, I may not need to sleep in the same bedroom as her. So he moved to another bedroom in their home, one that he could lock the door of. So they, you know, he moves, he locks the door when he goes to bed at night because, you know, don't really want to get woke up that way again. Well, in a fit of her rage and, and you know, one of her outbreaks, uh, she breaks through the door. She doesn't knock it off. No, she breaks through the paneling of the door in order to get to him and cause him physical harm. 
And for him, for Bert, that was the final straw. He, he decided he needed to leave her. And it was the only option. But because of the level of abuse that had went on, both emotionally and physically, he decided he wasn't just going to leave her. He decided he was ready to remove himself from the world. That's how I'm going to describe that, just FYI. So he went back to his office to perform the deed. But what he didn't account on was that someone would be in the office because this is after hours. Uh, I, from the what I'm taking, it's actually like a weekend kind of thing. So he goes to the office and lo and behold, there's his secretary, Miss Honora Parker. And she is able to talk Bert down and she offered him an out that didn't include no longer existing. She said, you know, how about you hold off on this whole removing yourself from the world thing and we elope, we run away together and they would never come back. Bert knew that Louisa would absolutely deny him a divorce. So really, did he have any other options? Not really in his own mind. And once Nora and Bert left that office and decided, you know, we're, we're just going to run away, they started living as husband and wife. Well, due to that pesky little thing with the wife, he couldn't legally marry his new lady. So the next best thing was to live as though they had gone through with the I do's. That's how the story goes following the murder of Honra. But some speculate that it originated with him having an affair with her at the office. And they decided to elope together and abandon their life. Um, because they didn't think that Louisa would give Bert a, a divorce. And it was just more simpler than the, uh, you know, the alternative. What we didn't know was Louisa and Bert had two sons together. Because according to Bert, he only had Louisa. He denies having sons. And we get the story about how Le Louisa was um, abusive. I don't know how much of that is true either because when your wife or your partner or whatever you want to call it um, turns up murdered, you really want to kind of remove yourself as prime suspect. And I feel like Bert put together this story about his ex-wife being the way she was in a way to provide something for investigators to become empathetic with and, uh, you know, hopefully moving the spotlight from him to whoever really hurt his wife. So that's how the story goes, but we'll, I don't, I'm not sure. Hold on. Honora Mary Parker, who Bert would run away with, she was also known as Nora. She was 14 years younger than him. She followed Bert, and together they built a life that didn't include anything from their past. In July of 1931, Bert did the only thing that he could do to show how much he did love Nora and how much he intended to be with her forever. 
he went out and purchased her a wedding ring, and she wore it as though it was placed there in the eyes of the church and their friends and loved ones. They acted as husband and wife in every sense of the word, except for the fact they didn't have a piece of paper that said that's what they were. And technically, Nora was, her last name was Parker, but to those around her, she introduced herself as Reaper. Because back then, you didn't just shack up together. If you were living together, it's because you got married. It's, you know, it's a lot more common today that we see people move in with boyfriends and girlfriends and they begin living life as husband and wife long before the thoughts of marriage come along. Didn't happen that way. So for Nora to be gifted this ring, it was almost as good as the real thing. Well, just a few months after Bert put a ring on it, he was carted off in handcuffs. And you want to know what the charge was? Let me tell you. It was failure to maintain his wife and children. He had legal responsibility to care for them, even though he decided to break his ties to Louisa. Now, today we call it alimony and child support. But with divorce being a very taboo subject, failure to maintain is what they would charge men who would abandon their family. Now, either Bert came up with the money to correct that responsibility or the courts never pursued anything any further because there are no records within the court of Bert and his failure to maintain responsibility, nor did Bert serve any time in a jail or prison. So we don't really know what happened to this quick arrest kind of thing. Um, if I was a betting person, I bet one way or another, Nora came up with the money to clear the air. With all of that seemingly behind them now, Nora and, and Bert began to build their own life. And before you know it, they bought a house that was strictly in Nora's name. Nothing was ever in Bert's name with when Nora and Bert did anything together, everything went into Nora's name. This way, Louisa, I guess, couldn't come in and take things from him. Before you know it, they had bought this house. It's in Nora's name. And now baby number one was on the way. Unfortunately, due to heart defects during development, their first child did not live past a few days old. But it didn't stop them from trying to create a family. So in March of 1937, their oldest daughter was born. And then just a little over a year later, on May 26, 1938, Pauline Yvonne Parker, because back then if the wife, if the mother went by Parker, the baby went by Parker. Um, but she was Reaper in every sense of the word as well. When she started going to school, she went by the last name Reaper. But technically, legally, her last name was Parker. Just before Pauline's fifth birthday, she developed an infection that led to osteomyelitis. This is swelling in the bone due to an infection. And without the readily available antibiotics that we have today, she ended up going under several surgeries to drain the infection out of her leg. At one point, both Bert and Nora would 
were completely worried they were fixing to lose another child. But thankfully, Pauline overcame the infection, and the only thing that she was left with from it is a prominent lip that affects her leg, and it was going to be lifelong. So you got Juliet, who has lung issues, and now you have Pauline, who has issues with a limp. We do not see a whole lot of osteomyelitis in today's age because of the different antibiotics that we have. And we, you know, over time, there are antibiotics out there that are so damn powerful. If you're not careful, you're going to kill everything. And that's not good for you. But back then, this is how they had to treat it. And she, that's the only thing she walked away with, which... If you're one of those people to find the silver lining, you're like, ah, a limp is nothing compared to, you know, not living. In 1947, the very young Pauline would begin school at Christ Church Normal School. And on March of 1949, Bert and Nora welcomed another child. However, this child was not planned. They were getting up there in age. And unfortunately, she was born with Down syndrome. Now, many blame the age of both Nora and Bert when they conceived, but you never really know. And back then, very little was understood about why a baby would be born with Down syndrome. And nine times out of ten, before they got to teenage years, they were sent to live in facilities that catered to children like them. So... It wouldn't be long that Bert and Nora would have to move their youngest daughter into a home that was better equipped to take care of her. In February of 1952, the life inside Reaper Parker home would change. Their daughter, Yvonne, as they would call her, but I'm going to continue to call her Pauline for our sake, met her best friend. And many of my listeners are women, and we know as girls, we had friends that we were virtually inseparable from during uh, school time. If you were not with your family, this was the person you were with. That is what happened when the rebellious, angry Juliet enrolled at Girls High and set her sights on Pauline. In the Reaper home, Pauline was your typical child, but for the most part, they remember her being a happy child before Juliet came along. There would be some degree of difficulty like there was with every single teenager on the planet, no matter the gender, but nothing overly notable. Nora was stretched then as a, a wife and as a mother, especially when she had a child with special needs, and especially when the understanding of what exactly Down syndrome was and is and what it entailed and how to treat it and how to care for somebody who who was born with this, Nora just was, it was just beyond what she was able to keep up with. So there would be times that Pauline would get under her skin and she pushed her daughter to gain more control of what was happening in her life and really encouraged her to keep a journal. Well, when life changed and it included Juliet for Pauline, the girl whose reputation was growing rapidly in school as one of the one of those people who radiated self-supreme assurance. She was beautiful. She had outstanding mental abilities. And she knew how to throw around her dad's uh, success to only further herself in school. 
And then you have Pauline, who, who was raised in a different home, who came up a different route, who who still suffered from um, shortcomings. And now she has this friend who who's new to school, who is completely opposite of her, and together they're in awe of one another. For Pauline, until she met Juliet, nobody seemed to be worth her time. And for Juliet, before she met Pauline, she was in the same boat. Nobody seemed to interest Juliet. They didn't seem to have the same interests. They didn't seem to share a bond. But Pauline and Juliet found that connection in one another. Due to the fact that neither one of them could do very much exercise, they were often left out of physical exertion, and this allowed them to bond over their love for reading, their love for poetry, their love for fantasy, and together they started to create their own fantasy world. Juliet went home and told Hilda that she finally met someone like her, someone with limitations, someone who could be quick with her sarcasm, someone who loved reading and writing, someone who was basically her, but from another family. Now then, I talked about these two being inseparable. Most of us think of this as being innocent. However, the closer these two girls became, the more concerns began to arise. At first, Hilda was thrilled with Juliet's newest friends. She loved that they bonded over things and that they both and that both of them were interested in the same things and they had both gone through something similar. For Hilda, in her mind, Juliet had found the perfect friend. But whisperings began happening and even though Hilda may have seen it innocently at first, she may have supported the friendship, she may encourage the friendship, there would come a time that she would begin to listen to the rumblings going around town. And you, it, it was today highly acceptable. You, you know, if you and your best friend decide you want to have a romantic relationship, go for it. But back then, that was just not going to happen. What Pauline lacked in her personality, Juliet made up for. And what Juliet lacked, Pauline fulfilled for her. Pauline's neighborhood and Juliet's were both different. They both came up a different way. They both had different families. They both came from a different socioeconomic class. But Hilda made sure to notify the housekeeper that Pauline didn't live the same affluent lifestyle as the Humes were accustomed to. What they did, what they should have paid even more close attention to was that Pauline was everything that Juliet needed for Juliet to dominate. She was able to mold and shape Pauline into being exactly like her, but instead of trying, instead of worrying that Pauline would ever try to overshadow her, Juliet was confident that she was the leader. Spending all day together at school and then hanging out in the afternoon following their classes was not enough for these two girls. More times than not, the girls stayed at the Holmes home, as the Reaper's home was not up to Juliet's standards. But afternoons, they turned into overnight stays. 
Then they turned into complete weekends being spent together. And according to Hilda, there were more than one, there was more than once that Pauline told him she was unhappy at home, that she didn't feel like her mother understood her, and that she didn't even feel like her mother loved her. She was obviously happier spending time at the Humes all the time that she could. And Hilda loved it. Not as much as Juliet and Pauline, but Hilda was more than ready to welcome Pauline into their world and give her the things that she couldn't have. If the girls were not together, it wouldn't be long before Juliet would turn on the waterworks and say that she was sad for her friend because she lived such a horrible home life and Hilda would intervene and, and do what she could to get Pauline to the house. There is some possibility that the longer that Julia and Pauline hung out, the more outspoken Pauline was getting at home and thus driving the already stretched thin Nora to be even more uh, disciplinarian towards her unruly daughter in a way that some would say was corporal punishment. Um, back in the 50s, you talk back to your mom, you're smacked in the face. You know, if you don't want to listen, there's a leather strap that's going to meet your behind. Back then, that was not considered anything but discipline and correcting your child. But if you talk to every any child who ever lived in a home where that's the type of consequences that came when you broke rules, then uh, you're going to find out real quick, fast, and in a hurry that we all found it unfair. But in reality, we, we could probably go through worse and, and survive it just fine. So is there some possibility that Nora was disciplining her daughter more frequently? Yes, but there's also a great possibility that Pauline needed the discipline in uh, going on because she was picking up Juliet's way of life, way of thinking, all of that. There is also the other possibility that with being in the Hume home as frequently as she was, she began to resent her mother and father for not working hard enough to provide her with the same things that she saw her friend getting, the same lifestyle, the same house, the same neighborhood, all of that. There is that chance that some of that is resentment and in, in why Pauline was acting out. A am I going to say, yeah, that's exactly what, no, but you have all these factors and then you, you plug in the fact that she was just a teenager and you're like, ah, makes sense, right? After their first year together being friends, the efforts to hang out became more and more and more unruly. Um, both girls began sneaking out of their houses and Pauline would make the trip over to Juliet's house at night and together they would end up down at the paddock where Juliet was keeping her horse. From the moment that Juliet got her horse, Pauline began taking riding lessons and she fell in love with riding. But they used the horse and they used the paddock as a way to escape everything and it just be the two of them hanging out. And they often took midnight rides with their horse. They lived, breathed, and developed this fantasy world that they loved to be a part of. 
it wouldn't be long before they developed their very first pseudonyms for each other. I don't want to call them nicknames because that's not what they were. They literally, they literally put together a personality, a name, a person, a persona, and that's who they assigned to their opposite friend. So one became known as Nigel and the other became known as Philip. But like I said, this is not going to be the first time they do this and it's not going to be the last. Come the fourth form or of school or freshman year for those who need to know the, the lateral position or whatever. The girls were walking down the halls holding hands. They were whispering softly to one another not ever really allowing or, or even putting off that they would be welcome to anybody else joining them. When the school, when, the, when their classmates were having to attend days of physical exertion and the two girls couldn't, they would end up off somewhere writing poetry, songs, stories, whatever it was they were working on at that time. It's during this time that those in the administration of the girls' school and even their parents begin thinking that maybe there was something more to their friendship, something unnatural. Was it a form, was it normal for crushes to form between friends in an innocent way or, or maybe something forbidden? Those who attend all gender schools will say that it is perfectly normal for them to develop a crush um, on a classmate, but usually that dissolves over time, you know, same as the way the wind changes directions. But for Julia and Pauline, the one thing that none of the other crushes seem to have is they planted a seed that not many thought of during this time. And it wasn't intentional either. The administration and Pauline's mother, especially, um, began thinking that their friendship was not as innocent as they once thought. They thought the girls may have entered into something more romantic um, and that there was lines being crossed that shouldn't have been. And during that time, very little was known about being a lesbian or being a gay man. And what came with the unknown is the inability to accept. Many didn't think about same-sex uh, relationships during the 1950s, even though when you confided them to an all-girls school or if you had sons and you confided them to an all-boys school, something like this is bound to happen as they go through puberty. Now, whether or not they act on it, that's different. But for everybody during that time period, frankly, thinking that their child may like somebody of the same sex was terrifying because you would be ostracized from the community. How dare you allow, you know, very little acceptance back then. But many would dismiss it and be like, oh, I mean, I can see what you mean, but no, not really. And they wouldn't think two more thoughts about it at all. Just keep on going with their own life. The headmistress at their school couldn't seem to let it go. So instead of keeping an eye on the girls or 
intervening in a way that would separate the girls more and allow them to develop social relationships elsewhere, she went to Hilda with her concerns. Not Honora, Hilda. Quote, you were allowed to have a special friend as long as it was kept within bounds, end quote. But there was concern that these two girls were taking their relationship outside of those bounds. But Hilda took very little concern, like very little concern in what the headmistress had to say. Why? Because Hilda presented these two girls as more than best friends. And what we know about Hilda is she is not cut from the motherly cloth. She was fine with her daughter being gone due to an illness. She was free to go and do as she pleases. And they had their son. And it seems that she doted on her son far more than she doted on her daughter. Even if it was wartime, Hilda was able to to live the life she wanted to live without the restraints of being a mother to her daughter. So I can't imagine that she would find somebody who is preoccupying Juliet's time, who is entertaining her, which in turn allows Hilda to go and do as freely as she wants, thanks to her husband's handsome salary. I can't imagine that she would do anything to stop that because she didn't do anything to bring her daughter back during the warmer months of the season in England. She didn't take any effort to travel to see her daughter. So if she has this best friend who is taking up all her time and that's less that Hilda has to tend to her, why would we do anything to stop it? Hilda often called the girls beautiful daughters of a man who possesses two beautiful daughters. She was pushing the best friendship into the almost sisterly status. She encouraged their fantasies by saying, you know, they're, you're practically sisters. She encouraged them to continue to live this life. She pushed the girls together. It is not a bad thing until it's a bad thing. Okay. With Hilda making remarks like this and insinuating that she wishes Pauline was her daughter as well as you can see as well. You can see how these two girls would go on and commit one of the most heinous crimes ever to happen within the countryside of a beautiful island. Nora had encouraged her daughter to get a grip on who she was, what she wanted and things like that through journaling. And during the year that she, that Pauline and Juliet were really close in their relationship, her diary becomes littered with fiction. So she'll, she'll write in entries that actually took place. And then sometimes there's entries where it's complete fictional work. And living in a world like Juliet's, it allowed her imagination to unlock this stuff. Together, they could set a scene. Sometimes the scenery is beautiful foliage of the land around the center of the story to, to a fight scene, to a robbery, ending in some kind of extremely descriptive death. These girls had a passion, and frankly, I even have to admit, a talent for the literary world. We know this because we have the author, Anne Perry, who resides in the UK, but she tops charts across the world. There's no way that they were not 
already gifted and talented at a young age. There's no denying that either one of them could captivate you in mere sentences. Nowhere do we see anything that could potentially lead anyone to believe that these two girls had a romantic relationship that they were hiding from the world in any of Pauline's diary entries. As often as Pauline wrote in her diary in the time before her mother's murder, surely you would think we would see subtle, subtle hints saying or insinuating that the feelings for one another were not innocent. They, they were growing into something romantic, something passionate, but we don't see it. Even after all these years, even though many people have gone back and read through Pauline's diary entries that they had, there's nothing but innocence in their affection for one another. But you have the whole community noticing how extremely close these two girls are. And sometimes their mannerisms are not what they want to see. Therefore, they are deducing all of these negative possibilities. We never saw or, or we never had any evidence to say that what they were doing was wrong. All that these girls wanted to do is tell a never-ending fantasy and many of their stories were based off the film version of The Prisoner of Zenda. They could tell you this movie, forward, backwards, crisscross, this was the root of their obsession to tell a fantasy story. And tell a story was what these two girls were going to do. Have you ever sat down and thought, I could write a story? My avid readers are definitely saying yes to this question. Many of us have sat down and started to draft a novel, but somehow you never have time to return to it and write it the way it plays out in your head. What we fail to admit to ourselves, to other people, is that telling a story, a story worth reading, a story worth talking about, is far harder than we realize, but not when it comes to Pauline and Juliet. Two girls who were born and raised in different continents find each other, and together they begin to craft these stories, no matter the genre, and they are far more descriptive and captivating than that rough draft many of us had started. Both of these girls suffered a disease in life that forced them to be left out of certain activities, equality, I'm sure, was picked on by most, but together they were able to form their own little group, one that created worlds and fiction that they wished they could bring to life and live in. But instead of 
the something cheery and, and heartwarming, they would bring to life a grisly one. That would mean that Pauline would have to lose the very one that brought her into this world. All so ties wouldn't be severed and their stories would never really be over. I want to thank you all for joining me tonight as we dive into this true story of a best-selling author and a life she wishes remained in her past. With this series, my book recommendation goes out to the book Anne Perry and the Murder of the Century by Peter Graham. Entering into this story through Graham's eyes is intriguing and engrossing, um, and there's so many more details that I am not going to get to that he got to that really solidifies this story for you. So if you're looking for a read on our case that we are covering, this is the one I'm going to recommend. Join me next week as we continue our stay in New Zealand and look further into what would drive two teenage girls in the 1950s to kill in cold blood. As always, I leave you with one last line. Good friend knows all your best stories, but a best friend has lived them with you. Much love, the true crime librarians.